Our scripture passage this morning is Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, and he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. But rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every, every joint that which is equipped. When each part is working properly, gets the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Two wonders. Here we confess together our worth and our unworthiness. Our value is fixed, our ransom paid at the cross. God, would that be true? Would you help us to center our life there? Would we believe that our value is fixed? Because our ransom's been paid, God, would we be a people that are focused on Jesus and his cross? Would you help us to have your son as our north star? And God, we do pray for the Abilene Theology Conference. I feel like you have a work you're going to do, and I pray that many here in this room would come, and I pray that it would be a blessed weekend as we think about your word and your work among the nations, and I pray that You would call out missionaries, even from the membership here at Southside, from the membership at Redeemer, of Potosi Baptist, of any other churches that may come and be represented. Would you call out people that will give their lives for the sake of the gospel among the unreached? Pray for you blessing on the logistics that Mac would be able to get here safely and soundly, and it would be a very fruitful weekend. May we prioritize our time around your word. And we do pray for one of our missionary partners, the Brewers, as they're quarantined together in a small hotel room, not even able to leave, uh, that you would be with them this week. I pray for your spirit to be present. I pray for an extra amount of rest and patience in a really hard time and that it would actually be a sweet time. Would you help them to have perspective and keep perspective? And we pray that once they're out of this, that they would be able to return home. So please, Lord, would you grant their ability to get back to work? 
And God, would you build us as a church? I'm so thankful for your work in this congregation. can point to dozens and dozens of places where by your spirit this church is being built up. And I pray that as a result of our time and your word this morning, you would just do so more and more. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. We pray this through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God. Amen. I've been talking about church membership and sadly, meaningful membership is hard to find nowadays. There was a study done, commissioned, a fairly large study a few years ago. I mentioned it when it came out a few years ago and it was within our denomination and it was just to see how we're doing when it comes to evangelism, but especially with discipleship and the results were Disheartening. They sound good at first because they found out that over the last 20 years, and that was their focus, our denomination, which is a large one, 47,000 churches, had baptized 7.1 million people. And again, that should be exciting. But over that same time period, this discipleship task force found that actually our church attendance over that same 20-year period decreased by about 20,000. You would hope that with 7.1 million baptisms, our church attendance would grow by around 7.1 million people. I mentioned that as a denomination, we have 14 million people on our rolls, but on any given Sunday, we have around 4 million. Well, our church membership has become meaningless. So we're here spending some time on it. We're in week five of this series called Membership Matters, seeking to show that membership does matter, but also to help get clarity on the matters of membership and it's really a package deal. So especially if you're a member or you want to become a member at Southside, I don't normally do this, but I encourage you to listen to all seven of these sermons together because we're making a case here. What do we do? Well, the first week we looked at how Scripture teaches that the church has a regenerate church membership. Those who join the church need to be born again, actual believers. Then we looked at church leadership. The local church is to be led by a plurality of spiritually qualified elders and served by deacons. Then we looked at week three was on the keys of the kingdom from Matthew 16 and 18, where Jesus entrusts the church, the congregation, you, not the elders, with the keys of the kingdom, the power to admit and to exclude. Then we focused last week on some of the negative aspects of meaningful membership from 1 Corinthians 5. There are times, hopefully rare, there are times, though, that the Spirit calls the assembled congregation to remove someone for membership if they decide that they want their sin over Jesus and they won't listen and they won't repent, but instead willfully pursue sin. This week, we're going to talk about building a culture of discipleship, so more of the positive element of church membership. Next week, as we finish up Abilene Theology Conference with a focus on missions, we'll look at God's heart for the nations, what's the mission of the church, and then we will tie it all up with the job description of a church member. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chair, it's page 918. Ephesians 
And Ephesians has a really nice, neat gospel structure to it. Ephesians 1 to 3 focus almost exclusively on grace, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. There's hardly one command. In fact, I don't know there is, if there is a single command in Ephesians 1 to 3. And then there's this turn of the book in chapter 4. Therefore, Ephesians 4, 1, because of everything I've said in the rest of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, they're about our life together in the local church. What God has done grace. Now, how are we to live in light of the gospel, our response? And again, in week two, when we talked about leadership, I said that elder-led congregationalism is Jesus's plan for discipleship. By the way, we've got some books here left. So if you haven't grabbed one of these books, please grab one on your way out that talks about elder-led congregationalism. It's Jesus's plan. It's his program. God's will for his church is that it's led by a plurality of spiritually qualified men. But Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16 and 18, to the assembled congregation. So elders, leaders are responsible for the teaching and direction of the church, but the members are responsible for the members. We covenant together in a local church and commit to one another as a faith family. We're going to see that real clearly from this text. So let's consider four points from this passage. Christ the giver, the goal of the gifts, the goal of ministry, and then the nature of ministry. So first, Christ the victorious gift giver. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he quotes Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended in the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. It's kind of wordy, right? A lot of Ephesians is a little bit wordy. But the basic point here is that Jesus is the ascended Lord. Paul goes back to the Old Testament as he often does. And he quotes Psalm 68, which is about a victory by King David. In verse 8, it says, therefore, it says, notice that he goes to quote the Bible. And he says, therefore, it says, and that's a present tense verb. You know why? Because the word continues to speak to us today. It's a present living word. Jesus is the one who descended. He became a man. He died on the cross in order to become the triumphant one, the ascended one. So after his resurrection from the grave, he ascends to the right hand of God. This is his enthronement, his ascension. Jesus is the son of David, the king of the world, and he's reigning now that he might fill all things as Lord. And according to these verses, then, how does Jesus exercise his reign incredibly through us? He gives gifts to his body, the church. Christ ascends to the throne after his work, and then he blesses his people with gifts. He's the all-powerful one. This is the cosmic Christ, and now he exercises power for us. He said that a lot in Ephesians. Flip the page at Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 19, that we might know 
Ephesians 1.19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Look just a few verses later at verse 22. God put Jesus, he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is incredible. He is reigning and he has power and it's for us. And what gifts does this victorious Christ give? Church leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers. Apostles and prophets were foundational gifts to the church. They were temporary. They were to get the church off the ground. We see that in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 20. Speaking of the church, the household of God, that was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we still submit to the authority of the apostles and the prophets. We have their teaching. It's right here in the New Testament. What a gift. Jesus hasn't left us to ourselves. He structures his church with a foundation. These apostles and prophets, these ones who first received the revelation about who Jesus is. He's the son of the living God. And so Jesus now builds his church on this foundation of the apostles and prophets. Then he mentions the evangelists. This word is actually only used two other times in the whole New Testament. It's a very rare word. But evangelists, I think, are what we call missionaries today. They're the ones called to go. Go out, tell the gospel, plant churches like Philip and Epaphras and Timothy in the New Testament. We're all called to evangelize, but these are those specially gifted and called to the task. And then we have the shepherd teachers. And I say shepherd teachers because notice there's only one definite article in front of it, unlike the other one, the word the. Let me read it with a, showing you the emphasis there in verse 11. He gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So most people think this is one office shepherd teachers because there's only one article there connecting them the shepherd teachers this word for shepherd is the word for pastor and it's the only time the noun pastor occurs in the whole bible do you know that it's normally elders which is why we say elders here at Southside. pastor teachers shepherd teachers remember from week two on this church leadership a pastor is an elder is an overseer and elders then are given by Christ to his church. And what do all these gifts have in common? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. The ministry of the word. All these gifts are related to expounding the word of God. Apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherd, teachers. In other words, teaching scripture characterizes all four of these gifts to the church. As we're going to see, it's the word that builds up the church. As John Stott put it, nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. Yet I wonder if this need has ever been greater than it is in our own day. There's a famine in the land when it comes to sound teaching in churches. We've got a lot of other things in churches. We've got a lot of communicators and vision casters and catalytic growers and dynamic managers and conversation facilitators. But friends, the great need of our day is preachers and teachers of the word of God. 
This is God's plan. Now that we have the New Testament, the job of the shepherd teachers, elders, overseers, pastors, and evangelists is to expound and spread this foundational teaching. What we have in the New Testament, of course, it's foundation in the Old Testament. That's why here at Southside we're committed to what we call expositional preaching. So that the point of the passage will be the point of the sermon. We want to expose what's here. Expositional preaching. Christ. The victorious gift giver. This is God's plan. He sends his son to redeem a people. That son dies for them, raises from the dead. He's installed as king. And then he leaves that people with the gift of the spirit, Acts 2, and the gift of shepherd teachers. But that's not not all. What's the goal of the gifts? Look again at verse 11. He gave... Jesus, the victorious Jesus, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd, teachers, here it is, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Shepherd teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And remember, friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Rome got it wrong on this one. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are sanctified, set apart. You are made holy, not because of your own flawlessness, but because of sovereign grace. So shepherd teachers, which are elders, given to equip the members of the church for ministry, to train. So Jesus uses this same word in Luke. Elders don't do the ministry. You do. But we equip you with the word so you can go do the word ministry. There's a sense in which when I entered professional ministry, I left the ministry. Now my job is to equip you with the word to do the ministry. It's what this verse says right here, verse 12. That's why scripture doesn't give us the image of some pyramid with the pastor on top or some bus with the pastor driving. No, instead, what image is given here? A little bit later, it's the image of a body and the pastor's not the head. Christ is the head, 1 Peter 5. He's the chief shepherd. He's the real senior pastor of the church. We're a body and all of us called to ministry. This is all very corporate, a body with a head, not an individual part with a head. And each part is intricately designed, carefully crafted, vitally needed. You ever hurt your back? Affects the rest of your life, doesn't it? I'll pray for Sarah in our office. She's got back surgery tomorrow. Your back goes out. It affects everything else in life. You ever broken a big toe? It affects the rest of your day. The body's interdependent. All the parts needed and called to ministry. Friends, there's no passivity in the Christian faith. And there is no laity clergy distinction. Well, there's the lay people and the clergy garbage. You will not find that in the Bible. There are no priests in the new covenants. We're all priests. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Every member ministry, all right here, called to the work of ministry, if we're to mature. You know why there's so many bad churches in America today? Left it to the professionals to do the ministry instead of every saint. John Stott writes this. Here is incontrovertible evidence that the New Testament envisages ministry not as the prerogative of a clerical elite, but as the privileged calling of all the people of God. The leaders equip, the leaders train, but the members take ownership of the ministry of building the church up towards Christ's likeness. Notice this order here. Christ 
elders, congregation, chief shepherd, under shepherds, members doing the ministry. So that's the goal of the gifts. What's the goal of the ministry? Look again at verse 12. Gave these leaders, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's another mouthful, isn't it? But we could really summarize all of that as spiritual maturity. What's the goal of the ministry? Your ministry is to help the rest of the church become spiritually mature. Christ-likeness, the reigning Christ, gives the church leaders so they would equip the members with the word so that you would do the ministry of helping one another move towards spiritual maturity. This is meaningful membership. This is every member ministry with the goal of helping one another represent Jesus, helping one another be like Jesus. And look at the way that Paul describes this this ministry, this maturity. What's the goal? Well, he describes it here in five ways. He says it's the ministry of building up the body of Christ. That's what he says there in verse 12, for building up, for building. Building is spiritually strengthening one another. The church must be built up, and it will not be built up unless each part's doing its work, right? That's what he says at the very last verse. Look at verse 16. It's equipped when and only when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the kind of growth we're after, and this is spiritual growth. This whole context is spiritual maturity. It's not the focus of numerical growth. That's where we often go wrong when that's our number one driver. Well, here, a strong church is the result of every member taking ownership and their responsibility to build one another up. This is our job description as a Christian. Week three of this series on the keys of the kingdom, remember Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. It's the verb form of this same word of your calling to build up one another. Isn't that incredible? Jesus promises to build his church. How does he build his church? He leaves and he sends the church gifts who will equip you to build his church. Is that not incredible? Christ is building his church through you as you build up one another into maturity. He gave the congregation the keys of the kingdom. His plan is to gift the church with leaders who teach the word, equip you to build. Elder-led congregationalism. What an amazing privilege. Church is so much more than an hour on Sunday. It's an identity. Jesus builds his church through us, and he's given us a privileged role in the most important work in the world. I wonder if you look at your relationship with the church as a builder. Do you enter this place with intention? That's why we gave out that book several weeks ago, How to Walk into Church. Do you come in here with a mind to encourage? Do you come here to actively build up? 
or to passively receive? Another way of saying this is do you come as a consumer or a contributor? You know, we've built in extra time here at Southside between Bible study and service, built in about 30 minutes of time on purpose. And if you're like, you know what, that's too much time. 30 minutes, that's just too much time between service. You might have the mindset of a consumer. Because if you come in here with a mind to encourage, how can I come in here and meet someone new? How can I come in here and build someone up? How can I come in here and encourage with the word? It won't be enough time. Won't be enough time. Come early. Stay late. And while I'm stepping on toes, might as well stomp a little bit. George Whitfield was one of my, he's one of my heroes. A few weeks ago, I got here early and there was a dead cat in the parking lot. I thought, well, here we go, pastoral ministry. Where's the, <laughs> Justin Williams helped me out. It made me think of George Whitfield because George Whitfield, when he would preach, at least one time, maybe multiple times, he was preaching and they didn't like his message and they threw dead cats at him. So I was thinking, well, here I am disposing of a dead cat. It's better than Whitfield who had him thrown at him while he was trying to preach. George Whitfield said, it's a poor sermon that causes no offense. If you stroll in here late, what are you communicating? If you come in here late, you're saying, I'm here to be served. Someone else turn on the light. Someone else made the coffee. Someone else will be a greeter. Someone else is handling the music and the slides and the video and the children and the teaching. I'm here to be served by this church, the, my vendor of religious goods. So we want a mindset that doesn't say serve me, but says, how can I come in here and serve and encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ? Why? For Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. We're builders here. We're all construction workers here. And there's plenty of work to do. And we're not building any type of building. We're building a certain type of structure, the very house of God. That's what he says in chapter 2. Flip a page, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. We're building the temple. Every member is a temple builder. The church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I wonder if you changed your mindset about the church. I am involved with the local church and I have a job to do and that job is to help build the very house of God. Second thing he says about this ministry, it should lead to the unity of the faith. Look at verse 13 again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The faith here is not referring to our own individual faith. It says the faith. What it's talking about is a body of content that we've received. Much like in Jude chapter 3, it says that we're called to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So really we're talking about the truth of the word here. We're talking about doctrine here. Shepherd teachers equip the saints so you will do the ministry and help each other reach, attain doctrinal unity. That's why we take Bible and theology so seriously here. Is this you? Do you do this? Do you seek to foster unity in the church? Unity has been a really big concern so far in the letter to the Ephesians. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at 
many ways, this is God's goal in world history is a certain type of unity, a Christ-centered unity. Look at verse 9. God's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. What's his will? What's his purpose? Which he set forth in Christ as a plan. What's his plan? For the fullness of time, here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What's his plan? Unity around whom? Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, look at verse 14, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, God's made himself Jesus has made himself our peace, who's made us both one, unified, and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That's the church. He's about unity in the church around Jesus Christ. Then flip the page and look at chapter 3, verse 9. What's God's plan? It's much the same as we've already seen. It's to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is his goal, is to unify the church around Jesus, and he's flexing his muscles to the angels and demons, showing this is my wisdom. This is why we exist, to be centered on Jesus Christ and to help one another center on Jesus Christ. And as we do so, as we build strong and healthy churches, God is showing his glory and displaying his power through us. Then look at chapter four, because of this, therefore, verse one, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is the goal, the unity of the faith. This is what we need to be about for one another. What's the third way he describes the ministry? He says there in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God. Greater knowledge of him. It's all about him. Jesus is the center. We just saw that. He's the center of history, uniting all things in him. So therefore, obviously, our life needs to be focused on him, right? He's our cornerstone. That's the most important stone. Is he that in your life? If he is, you know what one of your callings will be? To help him become that for others. We preach Christ and him crucified, and you encourage one another and teach one another and exhort one another to keep Christ central. Ministry fourth is leading others to maturity. Look again at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says each member is to build the church until we all attain maturity, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus fills the church and it becomes mature as Christ is formed in us. The point here is that we become like Christ, spiritual maturity. We want to grow up. We don't want to remain children. 
The Message Bible paraphrased this verse this way. It says, no prolonged infancies among us, please. You notice the progression we've seen so far. Through the church, the one new man. Jesus has made us one, the one new man. And now here in this verse, we're to become a mature man. And then in chapter 4, verses 20 to 24, it tells us how. We're to put off the old man. We're to renew our mind. We're to put on the new man. We are to all pursue spiritual maturity. And we won't get there if we're not helped by one another and if we're not helping one another. Fifth way speaks of this ministry is its doctrinal stability. You kind of already mentioned that. We want to be mature so that we won't be like children. Children are blown about by every wind of false doctrine and tossed by every wave that comes by. You ever had the, the, the idea you thought was good to take toddlers to the ocean? Sounds good before you plan it. It's a bad idea. You got all the salt they're used to swallowing the pool water. Well, not the ocean. Sand in every crevice you can imagine. Sunburn, sunscreen in the eyeballs. And they can't handle the waves, right? It just takes one knockdown and they're done. And so you spent $500 to send the whole trip in the hotel pool at the ocean. Paul says we need to grow up. We need to be doctrinally stable. We need to be able to recognize true and false teaching and not be weighed, knocked by the waves and blown by the wind. The goal of every member ministry is spiritual maturity. And friends, a hallmark of spiritual maturity is when a believer finds their greatest joy in helping another believer grow spiritually. I pray that for you all regularly. In our age of just doing whatever works so that we can have bigger and better, our age of pragmatism, it's got to be emphasized that this is the kind of growth that ultimately matters. Too many today, too many churches and church leaders are driven simply by numerical attendance. The killer bees, budgets, buildings, and butts in the seats, nickels and noses. But this passage is about spiritual growth. That's the goal of ministry. Fourth, what's the nature of the ministry? It's there in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Rather than being blown about and deceived by false teaching, we speak the truth to one another. The truth is the word. We speak the word to one another. The word must be on the tips of our tongues. We need to be talking about it all the time. Why? Because God works through his word. You know, sometimes we speak about Christians or especially churches and we'll say, you know, they have a high view of God's word there. They've got a high view of God's word, high view of scripture. I want to be about churches that have a high view of God's word, but we probably should stop using that language. And we should probably just say that church has a high view of God because you can't have a low view of God's word and have a high view of God. They go together. It's his word. It's his voice. It's his mind. He and his word are inseparable and his word is an extension of himself. You have a low view of God's word, you've got a low view of God. God acts through his word, and so we speak the truth so that we will grow spiritually. 
In the original, you've got this verb, we grow. It's the main verb. And then you've got a, you got a modifier. So we grow, how? By speaking the truth in love to one another. To grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow. You know why we make such a big deal out of the word here? I mean, just confess, it's not because it's easy. It's because we love you. And we believe that the spirit works by the word. And we want you to grow. We want to equip you. That's why we preach the whole council and let this thing drive the agenda. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is powerful. The word of God creates life. Genesis chapter 1, how does, he, how does he begin this whole thing? He speaks and the universe comes into being. The word's effective. The prophet Isaiah says that this word will not return empty. It will accomplish that which God purposes. It will succeed in the thing for which he sent it. And so we speak the truth to one another. We hear it. We read it. The word goes out. And you are to speak it. It is to reverberate through the church, asking questions about it. Hey, what did you think of the sermon? What were your takeaways? How does it apply to your life? Did you know that about the passage? We receive this word and then we spread it around. We talk about it. We gossip the gospel. Sunday mornings is the starting line, not the finish line of your word work. We're to speak. Us ordinary people, we're to use our words to build the church. Incredible. Look at chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. How amazing that we have words that can build the temple of God. We have words that God will use to actually give grace to one another. And this is love. We speak the truth in love. Love's doing what's best for one another. And what's best is helping people grow spiritually. This is how we grow. As each member, member speaks the word to one another, we grow up. And sometimes we need a word of correction. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Both formative discipline and then sometimes corrective discipline. There are times we need someone to lovingly shape us up. To be confronted at times. The Proverbs are filled with this sort of thing. The Proverbs would tell us again and again that it is wisdom to be one who gives and receives correction. Let me just read a few of them. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. God says that. That's a bad word in my house. God says, though, if you're one who hates correction, hates reproof, you're the S word. Proverbs 15, 32. Let's not be dumb. Proverbs 15, 32. Whoever ignores instruction 
despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love, and faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 29, verse 1. He who's often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. We could go on and on and on. There are times where we need a word of rebuke from our members because they love us. A word of exhortation, a correction. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 puts it this way. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Falling away is a real possibility. It always is. Many of you right now have people in mind that you know of that have fallen away, shown that their faith wasn't real. And so the warning here for us is take care that you don't fall away. And then he tells us how. How can we keep from falling away? Verse 13, but exhort one another. That word exhort, it's when we get in each other's grill. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Every one of us has a possibility of falling away. What is the means by which God has given us to keep us from falling away? There's actually a lot of them. But according to this verse, what is the means by which God has given us from falling away? It's exhortations from our brothers and sisters in the local church. Friends, we need meaningful membership that we might finish well together. Verse 16, Ephesians 4, is elder-led congregationalism. Jesus, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The joints here, I think, are the shepherd teachers. They equip, but each part, every member, must work properly. Every member ministry, right? That's how we started. Look again at verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one, everyone, you, you have been given grace according to these verses. Every one of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have been given grace for the purpose of ministry. We have received this gift, and we're called, First Peter, to be a good steward of that gift. And so how are we doing? Is each part working properly? When it does, the body will grow and build itself up in love. We need every member ministry to grow like God wants us to grow. And we grow from him. You notice that? We grow from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Christ gives his church growth and maturity. Listen to the way the New Living Translation puts it, puts on on verse 16. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Friends, I submit that this vision of the Christian life as the church life is the greatest calling you can aspire to. You want to be a part of something big, don't you? We need part of something epic, right? 
work that matters, something to give your life to that has eternal significance, God's eternal purpose. Ephesians 3.11 is to display his wisdom and his glory through the church. A unified people committed to the good of one another and the glory of Christ. Listen to the way Paul David Tripp puts it. Speaking on this verse, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We are sinners who fall short, but you haven't left us. You've sent your son to redeem us as individuals and to redeem a people purchased by his blood, zealous for good works. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the church, your plan to show your glory and wisdom. Thank you for the meaning that it gives us. And I do pray that church would be so much more than an hour or two during the week, but would become our identity. So thankful for the leaders that you give to your church, and especially here locally, the leaders that you've given Southside Baptist Church, men who fear you first and foremost, godly men who love you, care for your people, and submit to your word. God, would you produce in this body a sold-out passion for Jesus Christ and his glory? May we spend and be spent for the building up of the church, for its good and for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.